Well, that story there in, in Daniel 3 about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I mean, it's, uh, it's a wonderful story, isn't it, of, of faith and of standing for principle and of standing with your back to the world, really, and saying, well, come what will, I will stick for, for principle and I will stand for God. And yet it's, of course, so much more than that. And uh, start off there in chapter 3, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. But just the previous chapter, chapter 2, We've seen Daniel telling Nebuchadnezzar about the dream that, Daniel, that Nebuchadnezzar had had with the, the great image, you know, the different uh, metals in the image, and Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. And then Daniel tells him, but after you, there's going to come another empire, then another one, then another one, then feet part of iron, part of clay, and then the God of heaven is going to destroy your kingdom and all the kingdoms of men and establish the kingdom of God here on the earth that will last forever. And so Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel's basically saying, your time is limited. You will pass from the scene. You are not eternal. And all that you have fought for, all that you have strived for, all that you've built up in your kingdom is going to be ground into, into little pieces and blown away, and it shall be no more ever again. And Nebuchadnezzar had obviously thought about this. First of all, he says, oh, yeah, you know, that's great, Daniel. But then, like us, when we're faced with the Bible's message about the mortality of man and the, the need to believe in God's kingdom and not to build up our own kingdom, you know, we accept it, like Nebuchadnezzar did. But then we stop and think, ah, maybe, maybe there's some other way. Maybe, no, I don't like that. I want to have my kingdom all the same. So Nebuchadnezzar makes an image, verse 1, an image of gold. Now, he had been described as the head of gold. If you look at chapter 2, verse 32, this image's head was of fine gold. It's the same word there for image and gold. And so he decided that, no, I don't like this, this uh, vision that I've had. I actually am going to last forever. And the whole image actually is going to be of gold. So it's his way of saying, no, I, I don't like that, uh, that image, vision that I had where I am going to pass away. I want to have a, a kingdom that's going to last forever. That will be my kingdom. And maybe he did this subconsciously. Maybe it was not so consciously done. I don't know. But all the same, psychologically, we all have that same problem. We all would say, yes, I believe in the good news of the kingdom of God coming on earth. And yet... And yet, consciously or unconsciously, we want our little kingdom, our career, our savings, our house, our family, or whatever that we've spent our lives building up, we subconsciously want that to last for forever. And we don't like the message that we are mortal, and that life is so, so brief, and that we are as water spilt on the ground that cannot be, cannot be gathered up. And so... We are confronted by this gospel, this good news, this message of God's kingdom, and we are asked to identify ourselves with his kingdom, and not to build up through our careers, through our savings, through our work, our labor, etc., something that we think will last forever, because it will not, but instead to give ourselves to, to his kingdom. Now, so many times in this chapter 3 of Daniel, we read that he set up, he set up this image. You've got it in, in verse 1. He set it up in, in the plain of Dura. Then you've got it again in verse 2, in verse 5, verse 12, 14, 17, 18. You, you can circle them, if you like, in your Bibles. That this has been 
set up by Nebuchadnezzar. But it's the same word in chapter 2 verse 44 that the king of uh, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will stand forever. And he didn't like that. Nebuchadnezzar didn't like that. So he says, no, I am going to set up my image that will be forever, basically. And when we're told that he made an image, it could be that it was a god, but it could also be argued that, in fact, it was an image of himself. Why I suggest that is because there is a difference between the image and the gods of Babylon. If you look... um, Verse 12, they serve not your gods, nor worship the golden image which you, Nebuchadnezzar, has set up. Verse 14, he says, is it true that you don't serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? 18, they answer, we will not serve your gods, nor worship the golden image. There seems to be a difference between the golden image and the gods of Babylon. And I I suspect that the image that he'd made was actually of himself, that he was going to stand for ever, so he thought, so he wanted. And here again, we're confronted by a very basic principle, that in Genesis 1 we're told that we were made in the image of God. That is his intention, that we should be in his image and not set up ourselves, as it were, foolishly in our own image. As Gorky, one of the uh, old-time communist uh, writers said, and I think quoting from somebody else some centuries ago, there is a God, but man created God in his own image and after his own likeness. And whilst that, that is blasphemy in one sense, in another sense it's something that all people would, in one way or another, like to be true. That we create God after our own image, that we play God, that we think that we actually are the ultimate and that we are not in this world to be actually an image of anybody else but to be totally independent. And here the, uh, the logic of Romans 6 comes in, that you, we're slaves. You can either be a slave to sin, self, or a slave to God, and that's your choice. You have a choice and there's no third way. There, there is only those two options. So then, he does this. And he uh, commands that uh, everybody, all the rulers of Babylon, come and worship this, this image. Now, the question is, of course, where's Daniel? We read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who in chapter 2, verse 49, we read that these were friends of Daniel, and he asked the king if they could govern the affairs of the province of Babylon, whilst Daniel sat in the gate of the king. So then Daniel himself was, as it says in 2.48, a great man, ruler over the whole province of Babylon, chief of the governors, etc. So where was Daniel? Well, it could be that Daniel, as soon as he was made this great man, he, he kind of got out of it, he slipped away. And that's actually what you see as a theme in Daniel, in the book of Daniel. That Daniel interprets a dream, he, he's made a great leader in the kingdom, and then Sometime later, there's another dream. Oh, yeah, there was that Daniel guy. Yeah, he, he, he can interpret dreams, right? Let's, where is he? Let's get hold of him. So whenever he was given worldly advantage, he kind of got out of it. He slipped away. How many times has that been true 
in, let's say, the businessman or the person working in a corporation, the typical office worker who is promoted, who is put into a situation whereby their conscience somehow can't operate freely anymore and they therefore somehow get out of it. In the eyes of the world, of course, they're doing stupidly. Yeah, you've been given this promotion. You've been reassigned. You've been told to go and live in this other country or in this other town uh, and do, uh, do, be, be the, the big guy there. No, I don't want to do that because there's no other believers there. There's no ecclesia there. There's no whatever. No, I won't do that. In the eyes of the world, this is stupid. But Daniel, it seems, was made one of the most powerful people on the whole planet. You know, the, uh, the ruler of the affairs of the province of Babylon, the prime minister, as it were, of one of the greatest empires on earth. And he, time and, away, time and again, he slips away. You know, it's a bit like, again, the businessman at a dinner or something and the, uh, the drink starts to get a bit free and things start to slip away morally, excuses himself, slips away. When we're in those situations, and they happen, it can happen on a big scale, in a big corporation, big businessman, or it can happen with the, the humblest, smallest person on this earth. When situations arise, now, this is not for me. I'll slip away. I'll excuse myself from this party, from this celebration, from this situation. And we're in good company. That's possibly what Daniel did. That's maybe why Daniel's not around here. But another option, of course, is that Daniel was simply weak. Because that is what makes these men of God so great, that they were weak, like we are. Maybe at this time he just was having a, a low moment. Maybe. Um, of course, in chapter 6 later on, when, when he's thrown into the, into the lion's den, he was strong and said, okay, you say I can pray to my God. Well, okay, I throw my windows open so you can all see what I'm doing. And I'll pray to God and I stand on my back to the world. You want to kill me, you can kill me. So maybe he was in a, a moment of weakness. And that, to me, makes him even stronger, even greater. One other point about this uh, great big uh, image that, that is put up. If this was made of solid gold, I mean, this is a huge amount of gold, I mean, really massive. Herodotus talks about Babylonian images, and he talks about how the kings of Babylon liked to, to make these gold images, and he says that they were all hollow. And he, there's a, an image of Belus, B-E-L-U-S, that Herodotus describes, not as big as this one, but it was the biggest that Herodotus had heard of, and he says this, this was also go, uh, hollow. Now, this uh, image, if you look at its dimensions, verse 1, its height was 60 cubits and the breadth 6 cubits. That's very unstable. If I had built or designed that image, I'd be wanted sick as soon as the, the big uh, procession came and uh, the great moment came to, to fall down and worship it. I'd be wanted sick. The thing was going to fall over, particularly if it was hollow, even if it was made of gold. I mean, gold is not in that sense a heavy metal. It's very, very unstable and very, very prone to fall over. You know, I, I'm sure in my own mind that there, there was some sort of quiet system with sort of ropes and stuff sort of holding the thing in place in case a gust of wind came and the thing blew over. Now, what does that show us? It shows us that all the pomp and power and pride of this world, the images that are made, 
that we're all supposed to fall down and worship, that we're supposed to give our lives for, that we're supposed to sacrifice our faith in our God for, are terribly hollow, unstable, and not at all what they look like. The dimensions, as I say, were simply out of, out of proportion, that the thing's six cubits wide and, and 60 high, that's 1 to 10, uh, breadth to, to height. That, uh, that, that's just not stable. But I, I'll leave you to, uh, to, to, to think about that. Okay then, so then. The command goes out, verse 6, Whoever falls not down and worships shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Now, one thing we're going to bring out as we go through this chapter is that this is not just a story in history, but that time and again, the ideas are alluded to in the New Testament, and the focus is then upon us. That no longer is this just harmless history, painless history, that we read to little kids maybe as a, a fine story, but this actually speaks about us. Now, verse 6, you may like to scribble down there in your margin, Revelation 13, verse 15. Revelation 13, verse 15, where the Babylon of the last days, the beast, says the same, that if anybody does not worship the image that it has made, the same person is going to be, be persecuted. Let's just find that. Revelation 13, verse, verse 15. He had power to give life to the image of the beast and caused that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. That's another indirect suggestion that the image was in fact the image of something. Namely, I suggest Nebuchadnezzar. All the same, in the last days, in one form or another, this is going to be the case. That if you don't worship the image of the beast, you will be killed. So, are we in the last days or not? This is the question. If we're going to take Revelation 13:15 literally, we'd have to say, no, we're not, because there's no image that's standing that everyone's told, if you don't go worship this image of the beast, you're going to be, be killed. You're going to be persecuted. But, I don't think we're very wise to think, well, all right, Jesus isn't going to come, down, uh, come back from heaven yet, because there is, there is no image of the beast standing for me to worship. Of course, that's reading it very literally. I suspect that we're not intended to read Revelation that literally. So the image of the beast can be a more figurative thing. And all around us, we are asked to worship the image that is not made after the image of God, but the image of man. And we are made in the image of God with the intention that we should take on his likeness through the reading of God's word, developing his character in us, and yet all around us we're being yelled at and shouted at, fall down and worship man, trust in man. You've got a problem, phone your insurance company. You've got something with your health, go to the doctor. You're worried about the future, buy an insurance policy. This is all worship of man. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do those things, but the, the essence, the essence surely, is that we are to to worship God and to be and develop ourselves to be in his image and not in the image of the world or Babylon, however you want to take it, that is around us. Verse 16, carrying on this idea that this is not just a nice story, but it's kind of zoomed in 
unto us. 16. O Nebuchadnezzar, these men say, we are not careful to answer you in this matter. And careful, that Hebrew word there really means, well it's elsewhere translated, need or necessity. We have no need to answer you. No wonder you got like cranky with them. They said, we, we don't ha- actually have to answer you. They, they had a, a sort of an integrity and a self-respect which came out of their confidence in God. Now, this is quoted from the Septuagint in Mark 13, verse 11, where we are told that in the last days, we will have no need to worry how to answer before kings and tribunals, etc., when we're under persecution. So again, this story here, this true story, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is set up as our example in the last days. And who seriously doubts that we're living in the last days? We surely are. And they, they say, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. But if not, all right, if he doesn't, we're still not going to serve your gods. And I really love that, that devotion to principle. We believe our God will save us, but even if he doesn't, we will still believe in him. It's the spirit of Job. Even though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Habakkuk, even though the vine does not give its fruit, even though the the fields don't blossom as God promised them, I don't understand why that is. He's saying, all the same, I will rejoice in my God. And so this, I think, is the real proof of faith. That when we do not understand, and when we don't get the deliverance that we seek, we still believe. Now this is, I think, why life sometimes seems to be pretty cruel. And the cynic would say, God is cruel, and that's blasphemy, he's not cruel, Uh, he's a God of love. But it can seem that life is very tough and very unfair at times. Because it appears that God promises deliverance, etc., and it doesn't come. People die. Tragedies happen. Not only with health and death, but all sorts of human tragedies happen and occur. And why why does this happen? Because that, I think, is the ultimate proof that we believe. That we still hold on. And they set a wonderful example. But if not, I have underlined that in my Bible in verse 18, but if not, I have not written any comment there, but I know what I mean. And you you might like to mark your Bible in the same way. But if not, all the same, I, I believe. Okay, where did they get this faith from? They said, we believe that our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. Same idea, verse 21, they are thrown into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Well, this idea of a burning fiery furnace and being in the midst of it, they're actually quoting from the Old Testament, uh, from further back in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 4 verse 20, Deuteronomy 4.20, we're told that Israel were delivered from Egypt, which was a burning fiery furnace. 1 Kings 8.51, 1 Kings 8.51, says that Israel were delivered from Egypt from the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Same words here, verse 21. So, these men had thought about Israel's deliverance from Egypt, and that, for them, was a paradigm. 
God delivered his people out of Egypt, did this amazing miracle, opened the Red Sea, etc. And so, if God did that for Israel, if the Red Sea deliverance and the Exodus really happened, I believe that he will save me from my problem at work, my problem in my family, my problem in life, in whatever form it might be. He will deliver me. He can deliver me, rather. He is able, because he delivered Israel from their fiery furnace. And, of course, the implication of that is that Israel were in the fiery furnace in Egypt, but God took them out of it. And so I really think that these men thought, yeah, we'll be put into the burning fiery furnace. God won't just abracadabra save us out of from going in there. He will put us in there, but he will take us out there, out of it. That's what he's able to do, because he did that for Israel out of Egypt. And so when we read the Exodus record, again, it's not so easy to read it with real faith. Because it's not just history. So many times, God's faithful people, David particularly in the Psalms, keep on and on referring to it. Why do they do this? They're saying, because if this is what God did then, he can do the same in essence now in my life. Now further on in, in, the, New Testament, in the Old Testament, Babylon is described as a fiery furnace. Isaiah 48 Verse 10, Isaiah 48, verse 10. This is God talking to the exiles in Babylon. Behold, I have refined you. I have chosen you in the furnace of affliction. There's 70 years there in Babylon, sitting by the rivers of Babylon. There we sat down, there we wept. This was the furnace of affliction. Ezekiel 22 Verse 20, Ezekiel 22, verse 20. God says, talking about how he's going to refine Judah in, in captivity, he says that as silver, brass and iron, lead and tin are gathered into the midst of the furnace to blow the fire upon it, to melt it, so will I gather you in my anger and in my fury, and I will leave you there, this is in Babylon, and melt you. And the idea, he goes on, is to say that this is to refine you. So then, they knew those prophecies. And when they're told, you're going to be thrown into uh, a fiery furnace, they'd have remembered Isaiah and remembered Ezekiel and would have said, yeah, okay. We, therefore, are representative of all God's people in Babylon. Now, Babylon is likened here to a burning, fiery furnace. But actually, although they started off sitting by the rivers of Babylon, hanging their harps upon the willows, and there we sat down and wept, it didn't stay like that for too long. One of the saddest things, I think, about the close of the book of Esther is that you read how popular the Jews were in Babylon. They were wealthy. They had everyone giving them gifts and money. They were running the place. They got on very well, very quickly in those 70 years. And looking at archaeological remains from Babylon, it's quite clear that the Jews were the bankers, they became prosperous. And so when the command comes out, who wants to go back to, to Judah and rebuild God's temple? And You can all go and live, live back there in Judah. Nobody went. Well, virtually nobody went, relatively speaking. And to this day, there are still Jews in Iraq, in, in Babylon. And so they failed to see 
that that land of prosperity, that land of getting on well, as it turned out for many of them, was actually a fiery furnace spiritually. And it's the same with us, that we, we aspire in the flesh to good jobs, career, good income, nice standard of living, and yet we don't realize that all that stuff is a fiery furnace. It's a terrible place. Um, we, we, paradoxically, that's what we want. But it's there to refine us. Okay, so then this other figure appears with them, and the form of this uh, fourth person, verse 25, is like a son of God. And Nebuchadnezzar interprets this in verse 28 and says, your God sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him. And so in the court of heaven, all our situations here on earth are discussed. You may remember 1 Kings 22, from 19 to 22, there's a sort of a case conference in heaven where they discuss, God says, you know, Ahab's got to die, and they discuss amongst the angels how to do it. And one angel says, well, okay, I suggest that uh, we put a, a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. So he goes to Ramoth Gilead and dies there. And God says, right, that's the one. Yeah, I like that. Now you go and do it. And so the angel goes. And later on in Daniel, we read about how the angels are sent to do all sorts of things, to battle with the heart of the king of Persia, the king of Greece. Uh, and they come to Daniel. One of the angels comes to Daniel and says, well, I've been sent to you, man greatly beloved, and now I've got to go. So... God is considering our cases, the situations in our life in heaven, and sending an angel, sending an angel to deliver us and to be with us in the fiery furnace of this latter-day Babylon in which we're living. And so they're delivered. God didn't have to deliver them. They're those wonderful brethren said, but if not, Verse 18, I said, I underline that, but if not, we're still not going to serve your gods. He's able, but he doesn't have to. Anyway, in this case, God chose to, to do that. He did deliver them. And verse 27, there was not a hair of their heads singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. That implies that these guys came up and sniffed them. No smell even of fire. What happened? Now, this wonderful deliverance is alluded to yet again in the New Testament. You can underline verse 27, not a head of their head singed. Luke 21 verse 18, Luke 21 18, quoted about the believers in the last days that they will suffer great things and yet not a head of their head will perish. Now, as I say, this is where it zooms in. But it's no longer a nice little story for Sunday school kids or little children. This is about you and me living in the last days. And yet we may say, well, if we're in the last days, Duncan, where's the persecution? And yeah, you may be right. Maybe the very last days haven't come. And I don't like to say this, but maybe there will come an awful time of latter-day tribulation. That certainly would fit an awful lot of Bible prophecies, maybe for three and a half years. But, but, it may well be that the very last days are upon us, and I can see this world coughing and hacking its way on for that much longer unless the Lord Jesus does come back and God intervenes. 
So if we are living as we believe and hope in the last days, and don't forget, we should be living as if we believe the return of Christ is imminent, and that means that we should be living as if these are the last days, well, that means then that this persecution that is going on, our suffering at the hands of Babylon in this burning, fiery furnace, that is happening spiritually right now. That you and I are in the burning, fiery furnace, but not a hair of our head will perish. That means that all the, 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 the huge raft of temptation that there is around us, that these are the flames of that burning, fiery furnace that we are in the middle of. Now, we don't see it like that. You turn on a television, you look on the internet, the advertising, the all the things you can, you can learn about and get involved in in, the, in this world, sinful things, but the selfishness, the, the complete spirit of abandon to egoism, to, to looking after myself, to fulfilling myself, me, 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 worshipping the image of man rather than putting, God, uh, putting man in the image of God, I'm doing it the other way around, all this stuff is all over, everywhere, and we're so used to it that maybe we don't perceive it for what it is. And that's exactly the problem with the Jews in Babylon. They didn't perceive Babylon as a burning, fiery furnace. They didn't perceive how urgent was their situation to get out of it. Flee from Babylon. They'd been told in Isaiah, flee, get out. And they were given the option. When Cyrus made the decree, and most of them said, nah, Oh, yeah, we'll give a bit of money to those who want to go back. Yeah, good for them, all jolly good stuff. But, well, you see, I'm running my bank. I'm, I'm busy. I, I, you know, I, I'm tied up here. I got my house. You know what? I just got a new house. You know what? I, I just, uh, just renovated my whatever they had in their backyard. Um, not for me. Then Nebuchadnezzar comments and words that maybe carried more meaning than I think he would have realized in 28. He said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who delivered his servants that trusted in him. They yielded their bodies, that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. They yielded their bodies. Quoted New Testament, Romans 6, verse 16, Romans 6, verse, verse 16, about us. Don't yield your bodies to sin, but yield your bodies to God. Quoting, and I believe it's not, not, not chance, it's intended, uh, quoting right out of the Septuagint here, that those men yielded their bodies to God and not to this world. And that is to be us. This again, as I say, is no longer a nice story. It's a very challenging piece of history that grabs us and takes us right into it and says, those people there are you. Now, it can't be, I don't think, that some people have an easier ticket to God's kingdom than others. That, that one guy has a charmed life, he has a lovely life in this world, and then he slips into God's kingdom and lives forever. And someone else has to go through what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went through in a burning, fiery furnace, uh, and then, well, they sort of get to, to God's kingdom. I can't see that that is the case. I used to think it was the case. I used to look at people and think, wow, your life just seems so easy. You know, you grew up with a lovely family, 
very functional family, a believing family, you were raised understanding the Bible and, and God's truth and you were baptized and you married a lovely girl who had the same sort of background, you had lovely kids, you had good health, you had a good job, yeah, you, you were happy in your church family, didn't seem to have any problems and, uh, you know, then you, you lifted up your feet into your, into your bed in old age, surrounded by, by your, your grandkids and great grandkids, and died with a smile on your face, and you're going to get a God's kingdom when Jesus comes back. And I thought, why? Why, why some guys get it easy, and other people don't? And then, just the more you get to know people, getting to know people like that, people who seem like that, you realize what absolute hell they've gone through. Maybe, okay, not publicly, not in the eyes of everybody, but you realize what absolute hell everybody's gone through. And so I really think that no one's got an easy ticket. I mean, Paul says, through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom. And that's not just for one or two people. That's not just for people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's for all of us. So in essence, in its barest essence, we must each go through the fiery furnace. There is no other way. And so Nebuchadnezzar makes this decree, 29, that every people, nation, and language will speak anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, they're going to be uh, cut in pieces, etc. And then the king promotes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This again is a theme in the book of Daniel. That the king has a dream. It's interpreted. The king is made to realize one way or another that the, the God of Israel is the, is the only true God, and he makes a decree. Yep, everybody should worship him. Uh, and, and then, later on, the next king, or that king later on in his life, says, no, I don't want this. Like Nebuchadnezzar, all very humble at the end of Daniel uh, chapter 2. Then chapter 3, builds an image of gold in his own image uh, to sort of nullify God's vision uh, of the future and starts persecuting uh, God's faithful people. This cycle of humility, repentance, belief in the true God, and then going back to worshipping yourself and wanting your own kingdom, and then tragedy happening, repentance, humility, proclamation to, to the world, and then again hardening in pride and going back doing the same thing. This cycle goes right through the book of Daniel. But it's like with Israel, when you read the, the Old Testament records, they're all very humble. Judges is maybe the, the greatest example. They're all very, very humble when they get humiliated by their enemies. They cry to God, please, only this once. We love you. We come back to you forever and ever. Oh, thank you, God. And whoosh, off, you know, back to worshipping the idols. They get beat up by their invaders. Oh, oh, please, God, please, please help us. Okay, yes, yes, we, we were wrong, we were wrong. And, and the cycle is pathetic. And the cycle in our lives is so pathetic. I mean, all too often is not this the case. That our spiritual growth, if you like, is not a J-curve. It's two steps back and three forward. It's this cycle, unfortunately, of sin, repentance, humility, pride, sinning again, maybe the same sin or another one, resistance to God's hand, being humbled, repentance, etc. It's a sickening cycle. But if we're honest, we all go through this. And that is one thing I, I so long for in the kingdom of God, that we will no longer be like that. 
that the, the very structure of our natures will be changed so that we will not be like that anymore. But of course, we don't have to be like that. The Lord Jesus was not like that, was he? And the whole point of all this history is to show us that look, the cycle can be broken. It really can be broken. In the same way as we, we, we saw that, we've seen that these kings of Babylon and Persia had this pathetic sort of cycle to them, so we saw that Daniel had a, a good cycle, that whenever he was promoted in the things of this world, he slipped away. He didn't want it. And we can get ourselves either into an upward spiral or a downward spiral. And so, summing up, this story, this true story that we've read, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we are them, in essence, in these last days. And God is able to deliver us. But if not, we will not fall down before the image of man, but we will do all we can to be the children that God always wanted us to be, children in his image and after his likeness. Thank you.